Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Canada's military ombudsman is demanding the federal government immediately grant his office true independence over Canadian armed forces. What are the chances of that happening? Prime Minister Trudeau says Parliament has become a place of toxicity and obstructionism. Those are fighting words that are fueling speculation about an upcoming federal vote. Is it going to happen? And the Prime Minister says Canadians can soon expect more updates about the easing of travel restrictions should vaccinations continue to increase. But worldwide, the pandemic continues, and now there is concern of a Delta Plus variant. We'll give you the latest on that. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. I want to start with the military issues that we've been dealing with the last little while. Uh, we know about the, uh, the course of the, the number of concerns now about, uh, well, sexual assault and, and a number of things about illegal behavior and, and untoward behavior in the military. Well, yesterday, the roof came caving in on an awful lot of that when Canada's military ombudsman started demanding that the federal Liberal government immediately grant his office true independence and oversight powers over the Canadian Armed Forces. Gregory Lick is this gentleman's name. Uh, says numerous scandals and cries over the past 30 years have resulted in promises of action, but senior commanders and defense officials have in reality fought to protect their kingdoms from outside interference. Enough is enough. The cycle of scandals followed by studies, recommendations for independent oversight, half solutions and resistance by the department or the Canadian Armed Forces will only be broken when action is taken. So where are we going from here, and how is the government going to respond to this? Uh, joining us to talk about this is Christian Luprecht, who is Christian, of course, is a professor at the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University, and also a fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. Uh, Christian, as always, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you back on the program today. Good morning, Bill. My pleasure. Were you surprised by uh, Mr. Lick's assertions yesterday? <laughs> not one bit. I think... Uh... Uh, what we hear there is not just the frustration of his office, but I think it is the resounding echo of the frustration of tens of thousands of serving members who themselves can speak up and can speak to the media. Um, and I think it is palpable here in his voice um, that uh, the both he himself, who I think has been quite diplomatic until now, um, and his office and the continuity in terms of his office, how the um, is is not being that the best interests of Canadians of the Canadian Armed Forces uh, and arguably even of the government of the day is not being served with both the process and the sub substance of how matters are currently being handled and the way his office has been caught in the crossfire without at least from his perception being able to. Um, act and engage in the way that he would like and he believe it to be appropriate so and so you know i think this is a it's it's unusual for a senior civil servant to speak out as frankly and candidly i'm sure the minister's office and the prime minister's office had a heads up on what was coming um uh, that would be sort of standard practice in ottawa but uh uh, it, you can see that there's considerable um, pressure here, and I think this is what's uh, what's being manifested um, in the voice that the ombudsman is feeling he's giving to all the people who cannot speak up themselves. In a classic example of foreshadowing, I guess, uh, Mr. Flick's comments yesterday were eerily similar to an op-ed piece that you wrote in the Hill Times uh, not that long ago that talked about some of the problems within the military and the structure of, uh, of command that's going on here. So this is not a new issue, and it's, uh, I guess, the surprise uh, really, Christian, is that, that he spoke up in the manner in which you did. 
Uh, yeah, so I think the silver lining here is that we're finally having a democratic debate about these issues, and it's finally, I think, coming to the head about how pressing they are um, and how serious the issues are and the extent to which these issues are now compromising uh, mission effectiveness and capability of the Canadian Armed Forces, an institution that is ultimately there uh, to defend um, our way of life and to defend our interests at home and abroad, whether it's uh, with the vaccine rollout in continental defense or regional and international security. And so I think there's a real sense that uh, this has been dragging on for too long. And I think there's also a sense of frustration that uh, more um, leadership is required from the political level and that that leadership is not being seen moreover. And I think this is sort of probably where we see the harshest remarks here. Uh, is the sense that um, his office is being interfered with. And uh, that, of course, is a pretty serious indictment against any sort of either military overlords or political overlords, but it would also not be entirely... Uh, unprecedented for this government. I mean, we see this if you read between the lines and the challenge that uh, Major General Danny Fortin has, um, uh, has, has leveled against the government before the federal court, uh, where you can also see so the procedural fairness also seems to suggest potential political interference. Um, it's arguably that the government um, did not adhere to the RCMP Act when it called out matters of terrorism in London, Ontario, before the investigation had been completed, because the act clearly clearly states that um, uh, the politicians are supposed to stay out um, of uh, operational matters of the police, and it also appears that there may have been political interference uh, in the Public Health Agency of Canada, both when it comes to the Winnipeg Lab and to the broader handling of the uh, of the pandemic. And so I think there is an interesting pattern that may be emerging here, and that I think um, the Office of the Ombudsman feels that um, uh, they might not be an isolated incident. Well, clearly not. Uh, I, I know part of the substance of Mr. Lick's comments yesterday, and uh, you referenced, I think, uh, just a second ago, uh, he says, uh, in part, there, there have been subtle and insidious instances that suggest a pattern of personal and institutional reprisal by department officials against members of this office for their work. Uh, in other words, if they don't like the result, uh, then somebody's going to pay for it, and that, that seems to be it. And that's that's a, a, a sort of Damocles hanging over the, uh, the head of just about anybody who tries to uh, carry out the work of the, the the office should be doing. And that's, I think, the challenging part, the situation in which the office finds itself. It, it is one of the four direct reports to the minister. Uh, so it ultimately has one boss, and that boss is the minister. And we know that at least uh, the incumbent's predecessor felt that uh, uh, the minister um, did not um, interact with him and his office the way he should have. And the office, of course, is also caught between in the chain of command and the chief of the defense staff. Uh, and it would not be entirely unprecedented that um, if a senior uh, general uh, saw something that th that um, they felt might pose a risk to themselves or the institution, uh, that they might try to make sure they keep that out of the uh, out of the public eye. Um, whether that is in their own uh, personal uh, self-interest or in the interest of the institution. And that's, of course, really what the entire debate about professional misconduct and sexual misconduct comes down to, is to what extent should people's careers and should the institutional reputation be protected um, at the cost of, uh, of the victims. And I think the Prime Minister's remarks, um, recent remarks, made it very clear that the... 
um, that the victims now have to come first. Uh, the challenge is that we haven't seen the commensurate action in terms of a clear plan uh, from the minister or the government that seems to be preferred to kind of try to keep the story as quiet as possible. Um, and so I think, um, again, this I think where we see the ombudsman's frustration uh, that the government is not perhaps acting as uh, is not being as proactive as it could be and as it needs to be given to the relative dimensions of the crisis that the organization is facing. Uh, the erratic behavior of leadership defies common sense or reason. The concept of ministerial accountability has been absent, uh, like I went on to say yesterday, Christian. Uh, that pretty much throws the ball right to the prime minister, doesn't it? I mean, he has to respond to that that assertion by my Mr. Leck that uh, the minister here is, is just absent. Away, you know, he's, he's AWOL when they should be making conscious decisions about some of these accusations. But again, I think this is the concern that others have voiced with regards to a pattern in this government. Even look at earlier this week with regards to the actions by the opposition uh, in respect to the Public Health Agency of Canada, where it seems that the government is not prepared to take responsibility and the government is not prepared uh, to uh, to be held accountable. And of course, under our uh, Westminster system of government, the fundamental constitutional principle is responsible government, the government of the day needs to be held responsible by Parliament and by the opposition. Um, and the subsidiary principle to that is ministerial responsibility. So when the Ombudsman says that the minister is not living up to his obligations of ministerial responsibility under the Constitution, that is a pretty serious indictment. But unfortunately, it fits about a 20-year pattern that we've had in Canada where of the decline of ministerial responsibility and the concentration of power uh, in the executive, in particular in the Prime Minister's office, what Don Savoy has referred to as court government, that essentially we have a king that is the Prime Minister, not just this Prime Minister, but also some of his predecessors uh, in, in over the last 20 years that, um, that assemble their courtiers around them and that essentially govern by fiat. Um, and that are not going to have either an ombudsman or a parliament um, uh, tell them how they should be uh, held accountable for the affairs that they are running, but uh, rather they're quite happy to duck that responsibility. And I think so we see this broader pattern, and I would say that this is a broader pattern of uh, a crisis of democratic government and governance that has emerged in Ottawa and that has been exacerbated by the pandemic and the extreme centralization of decision-making uh, and power as a result of the pandemic. As you mentioned in your previous op-ed piece uh, from the springtime, uh, invariably when governments are faced with something like this, they maybe replace somebody near the top or appoint a commission or something. Of that. Well, that commission's already been appointed. Uh, former Supreme Court Justice, of course, Louise Arbour, uh, is going to be re leading yet another review into the, into the military. Where does that go, and, and, and how does that come about now, and, and what kind of an influence are, are these comments from yesterday going to have on that review? Well, I think this is also where the Ombudsman's office, I mean, their position paper is pretty clear. There's been a lot of uh, words written about this, and there's more being written. Uh, we just received the report from the Standing Committee, the House of Commons Standing Committee on the status of women with regards to sexual misconduct in the Canadian Armed Forces. There's bound to be another report forthcoming, this one from the Standing Committee on National Defense on this matter, and we can bet that this is going to be highly controversial, given how controversial the hearings before that particular committee were. Uh, so we're not lacking for analysis and reports, and yet the minister commissioned another report. There's perhaps an argument to be made that stakeholders were insufficiently consulted last time, and that's why the current 
policy was not as effective as it could be. But I think uh, the membership is uh, is the frustration by the membership and by the ombudsman is we kind of need to know what needs to be done. So let's get on with the job. And as I wrote in my own op-ed, there are two key components to that. One is an independent investigative mechanisms um, that is outside of the chain of command and that has real capability and capacity beyond what the military police can currently provide and that is free of the sort of interference, uh, either political interference or within the chain of command that the ombudsman is referring to. Um, and a separate, um, and that should be uh, an opportunity for anybody to complain about any sort of professional misconduct, whether it is sexual or otherwise uh, in nature, because leadership is ultimately uh, the be-all and end-all uh, in the military and the integrity and ethics of that leadership. And the other component is that within PCO, we probably need a, an independent mechanism for anybody who feels that they have been uh, sexually um, or um, racially or otherwise harassed within the government to be able to complain to that so that the silver lining is that the lessons that are being learned within the Canadian Armed Forces, the very hard lessons, can be of benefit to the entire civil service because it turns out that the challenges we have in the Canadian Armed Forces, as we've learned, um, are also present in other parts of the civil service. And this is the federal government. We ultimately need to lead by example. And I think what the ombudsman is saying here is that we're very far away in the federal government from leading by example. It's about do as we say, not as we do. I wanted to ask you about that, about the impact this is going to have uh, in the military itself. Uh, Mr. Lick did say, by the way, that he has not personally experienced political interference, but uh, the inference he said uh, comes from Department of Military leaders. So clearly he's, he's pointing at the chain of command here. But what about the rank and file, Christian? What about the attitude, the morale, uh, when a report like this comes out? Is there going to be, aha, we knew this all along, or is, 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 it, is it resignation that nothing's going to get done? How are they going to respond? Well, I think there's both sides of that, right? So one of the challenges for anybody who serves in uniform in this country is that they cannot speak in public um, on uh, matters of policy um, and especially matters that might be a matter of political controversy because they need to serve the government of the day. So as a result, they need to stay out uh, of the political debates and political fray. And so I think there's a sense by many members that they've effectively been silenced. And uh, I mean, I know from having spoken to many people that there is substantial frustration. On the other hand, I think uh, this is ultimately then the job that officers such as the Office of the Ombudsman need to perform. Um, and in this case, uh, standing up not just for individual cases, but for the uh, collective um, of uh, the people in uniform to ensure that, that they are being well served and that ultimately the interests of Canadians, the interests of the government, of the Department of National Defense, of the Canadian Armed Forces, and the uh, courageous women and men uh, that sign up for national service and to defend our national interest. Uh, and I think there's a sense um, that... Um, the, the uh, look, human resources are the most, the people are the most important asset that this organization has. Um, and I think there's a sense that uh, the people uh, need to be treated differently and they need to be treated better and they deserve better than what they've gotten uh, over the last three decades. And that is time for sustainable, palpable change. I got 60 seconds left here. And I have to ask you, I guess, what's the ultimate question of this whole thing? Uh, politicians say to give up power we know that and and the, the reporting mechanism right now i'm sure the government is very comfortable with as past governments have been uh, what are the chances of mr luck's recommendation about total independence for this and uh, and and let the ombudsman do their job without political interference 
Yeah, so Mr. Lick and I are not entirely on the same page here. Uh, my view in my op-ed is that we actually need an office of an inspector general that is more robust, that can be more proactive, that can proactively investigate and also has the capacity to remedy institutional culture and professionalism issues within particular units. Uh, but I also disagree with the proposal that an office should report to parliament. An agent of parliament will not have the power to affect change. The inspector general should report to the minister because ultimately the minister is the person best positioned to affect change and is also the minister of the go- and the government that can then be held to account uh, by parliament and by the opposition. So you can see this is a live, active and hot debate in Ottawa about how to structure such an entity, where it should report and how it is going to be the most effective. Um, and I think uh, this is partially why um, the minister and the government have asked for additional outside advice because there is no silver bullet to the challenges that we are facing Um, But one thing we all know for sure is we can't get it wrong again. And so the government needs to be determined. um, It needs to have a clear plan, and it needs to make sure that plan succeeds because otherwise the entire institution is at serious existential risk. Christian, as always, thank you so much for the time today. It was great talking with you about this very important issue. My pleasure. Thank you, Bill. Take care. Christian Luprecht, professor at Royal Military College and Queen's University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. They are winding down this uh, session of Parliament. They're going to be breaking for their uh, summer uh, siesta, uh, as it were, uh, in probably just a few hours, a couple of days, depending on how much more legislation they can get done. They're trying to get as much stuff as they can. The uh, uh, conversion therapy ban bill did pass yesterday, although a number of the Conservatives voted against it. And also uh, Bill C-10, which is the very controversial uh, bill about social media and things of that nature, also passed through the Commons, uh, but it looks like it could have some problems in the Senate. But it's typical at, at this time of year when we're trying to get toward the end of a session. Uh, there's a lot of finger pointing going on between the government and opposition parties in the days before the parliamentary break, fueling all kinds of speculation that, well, we may be in for a federal vote soon. We have seen a level of obstructionism. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau painted a picture of Canada's minority parliament in dysfunction. Pieces of liberal government legislation yet to pass on the eve of a summer break. Conservative MP Michael Chong says whatever mess there is, is the fault of the Liberals, like the fact Canada's Governor-General left after scandal. The government does not deserve another mandate. The government must go. NDP leader Jugmeet Singh says he's been helping the Liberals throughout the pandemic, and if Trudeau wants to go for a vote, people should see that as a play for power. Stephanie Taylor, The Canadian Press, Ottawa. So what is going to happen, and are we uh, looking at an election sooner than later? Joining us to talk about all this is uh, Richard Brennan, former journalist uh, for the Toronto Star, who covered Queen's Park and Parliament Hill uh, for many of those years. Uh, Badger, great to have you back on the show. Hope you're doing well today. Good, Bill. Yourself? Excellent. Excellent. You know, when a prime minister uses words like toxic and obstructionist, uh, that's usually on his way out the door to go visit the governor general. Is, is, is that closer than it was before when you hear that kind of language and that kind of rhetoric? Bill, I can't tell you the number of times I've heard that. Uh, over the years, and yeah, that's uh, it's a harbinger of things to come. Yeah, yeah it, it really is. I've heard it. You know, oh, the opposition won't—they won't let us do anything. It's their obstructionism, and you know, it's, it's just—they're just making it so hard for us to do anything. Blah 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 blah. And 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 it, and that really does spell, you know, the beginning of the end uh, for government. I I think you're looking at an election in late summer, uh, you know, right into probably September or, or very early fall, but uh, certainly no later than that. And that'll be two years. And most uh, minority governments don't last more than two years. 
I want to correct myself, by the way. I said, you know, on the way to see the Governor General, we don't have one right now, uh, yeah. which is one of the things I guess they have to do. There's gonna, we're, we're told that that appointment is imminent. Too, so, uh, but the timing seems to be exactly as you've just indicated. Uh, I know that the, some people were saying, oh, they may hold off until the end of the year or something. But I mean, it, it, it's a calculation, though, isn't it, for a government to decide when to do something like this? Uh, Jagmeet Singh's already said if you call an election, it's just a power grab. And that's what you expect to hear from the opposition leaders. Uh, but let's face it, the ultimate goal here is to get a majority government, isn't it? And you know, Bill, I'm not so sure they're going to get it. I, I know that they, they certainly think the, you know, reading, they're reading the tea leaves and saying that, oh yeah, we've got a very good chance of getting a, a majority government here. And they're looking at the opposition and, you know, leader is not known very well, Mr. O'Toole, and saying, hey, this is the time to strike because, you know, he really hasn't got his feet on the ground. So, Let's go for it now. I know they're they're carrying a lot of baggage this time, Bill. And I I, I tell you they'll they'll be struggling. I, it's not going to be a windfall, but any chance of imagination, it, you know, there is going to be. It's going to be a tough row, and if they get a majority, I'll be surprised. Because it's, again, for minority governments, a calculation to do this. I mentioned in my commentary this morning, I mean, Stephen Harper uh, did a similar situation in 2008. He had a minority government. Uh, that was when uh, when uh, Stéphane Dion, Gilles Duceppe, and, and Jack Layton actually formed the, the Three Musketeers, and they were actually going to the Governor General to say, we can form a government, uh, which, by the way, is totally illegal. But Harper said it was illegal, it was a constitutional crisis, the country's going to go to hell in a handbasket. So we called an election. And he did win, but it was another minority. So it, it you, you don't know how voters are going to respond. Mistake those uh, they, the opposition made because he he painted them as a, a bunch of basically people out to destroy the country. Yeah, and 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 that sunk in for whatever reason. I mean, they had, they had every constitutional right to do exactly what they said they were going to do, but he painted them as as a, a bunch of uh, guys who just you know wanted to take grab not take grab power from the government and it that message sunk in and you know that was just i'm just going back to history now but that was mm-hmm. a, that was a that was a miscalculation particularly when they brought the block into the the yeah. the group and and that was uh, that was that was the end of it right there uh, but again, they just didn't seem to have the, the 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 foresight to say, okay, let's give this guy a majority government. He ended, Harper ended up with another minority. It was a couple of years after that, of course, when uh, Michael Ignatieff was the liberal leader. That Harper got his majority government. So you really you really can't tell just how voters are going to respond to situations like that. I mean, they they hear the rhetoric, and you're right. In some circles, it really does resonate. Uh, but I I don't get the sense that that's going on here right now. I I. As you've told us in, in past discussions, I still think the majority of Canadian people right now are not listening to what's going on in Parliament Hill. They're not listening to the back and forth here. They're wondering about, you know, am I going to get my vaccine? When are the stores going to open again? Are my kids going to school in September? Those, those are the issues that resonate with them. And don't think for a moment, Bill, that they haven't calculated that into the, sure. you know, the next election. They're saying people aren't paying attention. This is the perfect time to have an election. You know, uh, we'll, you know... We'll, they'll sleepwalk to the the polls and uh, and vote vote liberal. Well, again, I think it's going to be a miscalculation. I, I really do. It's going to be tough for them to get a, another majority. 
despite all the things that they've read, you know, the tea leaves they've read, you know, the people are, you know, their minds are elsewhere. We've got an opposition that isn't that strong. And this is the time, this is the time for the iron to strike. But you know what? It's, it's, a, it's a bit of a risk. But again, it's two years, and majority governments very seldom last past, past that. What about a summer if he does make the call, what about a summer campaign? I, I, I mean, I talk about miscalculations. Boy, we can start listing those. I mean, Stephen Harper's election call uh, that was it seemed to go on forever, but he made that. I think it was in August. And it was going to be in September, but it was one of the longest campaign periods that I think we've experienced, and it actually backfired on him. Oh yeah, absolutely did. But no, I can see I can see it beginning. You know, maybe midway or uh, the campaign beginning midway through August and and going into September. And, you know, people, you got to remember, people are already, I know it's August, you know, it's lazy days and all that, but people in midway through August are already looking to, you know, the, the things getting back to normal again, you know, back to work, back to school and that. So I, I think I think very well it could be it could be mid-August, late August that they start the campaign and go into uh, through September. And, and it's actually a very perfect time to have a campaign. What about the, the impact of, of COVID and the, and the pandemic? If, if you know, the time frame that you're talking about here actually comes to fruition, uh, a lot of people are going to be vaccinated. I mean, we're doing pretty well nationally now. I mean, we had a, a terrible start to the whole campaign. We get that. But, I mean, right now the numbers are looking pretty good. It looks like the supply is pretty pretty steady right now. Uh, are, are people feeling good about this? And are they feeling good about the way that the government's handled it? Well, that's the, that's the million-dollar question as far as I'm concerned. Bill. Are people going to are they going to look in the rearview mirror or aren't they are they going to just feel so chuffed about having their vaccine that they they will not look back and say you know these guys really messed this up and there I, there's going to be that that those people who will still bear a grudge from the way this was handled from the very beginning and there'll be the ones that got their vac, second vaccine and saying man we're we're it's all speed ahead we're looking ahead I mean, if if things follow as as they're predicted to happen, uh, by August, uh, you know, as I say, most of the stores will be open. I don't know what we're going to do crowd-wise, but, I mean, you know, we're going to be going to football games again. The season football season starts the first week of August, so there's that going on and, and a number of other things. It's it's not going to be back to normal, but it's it's certainly on the way back to normal. Uh, and that, of course, is, is all predicated on the fact that there's not going to be another wave, and then who knows if that's going to happen. I'm going to talk about that a little bit later on in the show. But... It, it seems to be the singular focus of people right now is employment, jobs, and that sort of thing, which is not unusual. That's usually what elections are all about. But it's not what the opposition parties want to make this about, too. So what do you fight this election on? Is it simply that we need a majority, to, a mandate to be able to carry the, the programs and the, and the recovery programs that we yeah. want? Is, is that exactly. going to be the mantra? Bill, you nailed it. That's what it's all going to be about, is you know building out. It's going to be... We, we need a mandate so that we can bring this country out of, the, uh, out of this pandemic and, I, I'd say, mini-recession, that we can bring this country out of this. We've got the team to do it, and we've got to move forward. If you give it to somebody else, they, will, they won't know where the levers are like we do. And so please vote for us. And that's, that's what it's all going to be about, because we need jobs. We need this, we need that, and I'll bet you 
I'll bet you right now that you'll hardly ever hear the environment mentioned. Every election, they, you know, people say, uh, what's the top of your mind? They'll go health care, environment, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. When election comes, it, it, it never is. And I, I'll tell you, it will be all about the economy. Well, what's that going to do to the, to the national picture then? I mean, as, as we've seen in past elections, uh, the Maritimes, the Liberals usually do pretty well there, uh, but, you know, maybe pick up a few seats. Uh, Quebec's going to be a real problem for them because the bloc is still pretty strong there, uh, and those are seats that they really need. In Ontario, is it going to be the same old, same old, where in the cities they vote for the Liberals basically, and in the, in the rural areas they vote Conservative? Well, number one, the, the Liberals will do their best to buy votes in, in Quebec. That, that's a given. They'll, they'll find some project to, to fund or, or whatever, but you can just bet that's exactly where that's going. Uh, you know, the, the West, unfortunately for them, you know, they don't have, like we've talked in the past, they don't have a great uh, voice in all this at the end of the day. But they have to, they still have to get some seats out west. You know, Edmonton might be one for them. Who knows? I mean, that, that's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it, it's, Edmonton's far different than Calgary. And so they might get that one. And, and they're going to, you know, BC and that. So they really have to make an effort to appease the west somehow. How they're going to do that is beyond me, but they, they have to. They have to become more of a national party rather than, you know, uh, an upper Canada party. And there was a time, I know people just look at that and say, well, the West is a write-off for the Liberals. And there have been occasions where they did get wiped out, like in the last election. But there was a time, as you mentioned, in Calgary and Edmonton, where there were Liberals. Anne McClellan was a, 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 a an Albertan. Of course, she was in the uh, the Cretchen cabinet. There have been other examples of that as well. Uh, the story I'm hearing now, and I'm sure you've heard it too, is the uh, outgoing Edmonton mayor uh, is probably going to run as a Liberal candidate, a very popular mayor that just decided not to seek re-election. So, I mean, that's a possibility, I suppose. But... They're going to have to be very strategic if they want to start to pick up a couple of seats in Alberta. Well, if he runs, he's a good chance that he'll win because he is very popular. So, I mean, that'd be one for them. And, you know, Saskatchewan, they're really going to have to make an effort to try and include those provinces, you know, Manitoba, you know, Saskatchewan, Alberta, in, you know, bring them into the, the big, big tent, big red tent, so to speak. But whether they can do it or not is another thing. And this is, it, you know, it's just a tough time because of the pandemic. And, and it's a tough time. You know, the, the pipeline's been stalled and or maybe permanently stalled. So that's a, that's a factor, certainly in Alberta, because that's, that's jobs. How are they going to turn that around? That, that is, it remains to be a huge question for them. What's the downside if uh, if the the government decides no, we're just going to stand where we are? Uh, we'll look at the, this again and, and rethink this in the fall. Uh, we'll go through the summertime and just forget about this. Uh, as you say, the numbers are great for the governing party right now, but they're not bad. They're, but they're not in majority government territory. Uh, but you know, we've been surprised about that before. But I mean, is there a chance that if the longer they wait, that those numbers are going to start to go down again? I think so. I, I don't think they want to wait much longer. I mean, you know, O'Toole's not as, you know, hasn't really showed himself as being a strong leader. And they're, and the Liberals are going to paint, rightly or wrongly, they're going to paint the Conservatives just a bunch of right-wing nuts. And, you know, and I think that's, you know, certainly unfair, but 
despite that, they're really going to push hard and, and, and you know, put their voting on various things out there for the public to say and see, you know, are these the guys you want to run your government? These, these guys are going to bring back, you know, abortion, uh, the issue again. These guys are going to do this, that, and that. And they're bad for the economy. So there will be a lot of negative advertising in this election, no question, because basically they have to. They have to just punish everybody that they think it's uh, you know the the NDP is they'll say that they're you know they're not ready and the conservatives you know you know they're the Darth Vader and all that good stuff and you you'll hear that I do to a great deal I think in this election. Well, yeah, it's, you know, the conservatives, to a certain extent, are, are just kind of playing into their hands by doing that. I mean, even yesterday, the conversion therapy uh, bill that did pass, uh, most of the conservatives voted against it. Oh, Aaron O'Toole did vote in favor, of it, and, and it did pass, uh, but uh, but a number of others said, and they said, oh, yeah, we're, we're opposed to conversion therapy. We just don't like the bill. Well, oh, that's, oh, that's, how many times have you heard that? Yeah, come on, give me a break. Yeah, so, you know, I, I don't know how that's going to resonate. We agree with you, but, you know, this bill is just not right. You know, oh God! It's, you know, a nickel for every time I heard that. Yeah, it's, well, see, they—they're they, their own worst enemies in many ways. You know, who's to know that they would do any better or any worse job? We just don't know because they haven't governed. But the point is, they—they they seem to shoot themselves in the foot every chance they get by voting like they did yesterday, or not voting. How big is this? silent majority of voters we know that there are people that are just going to vote conservative no matter what there are people that are just going to vote liberal just going to vote ndp but there's this there's this group in the middle that and they're the ones that go and sway from one election to another depending on what's going on and they're they're actually the ones who who you know just determine who's going to be the governing party right now where are they where right across the country right now are, are they wanting an election right now is, is is it time after two years they say yeah let's give this a shot well, let me just back up there. there I'll tell you one of the problems that the, the uh, liberals are facing. There's a real anti-Trudeau sentiment out there. It's very, very strong. And if, and if that catches fire, if you know, if, if the opposition parties can paint him as a guy that just you know, uh, you know, bungles everything he touches, you know, this could go wrong for them in a big way. I mean, people don't. You know, I, I know the liberals probably think that you know everybody you know hangs in every word that uh, Mr. Trudeau says, Prime Minister Trudeau says, but they don't. There's a lot of there's a lot of animosity towards that man, and that's if he gets in a if he gets a minority government, boy, I tell you, I think it might be time for him to take a walk in the snow. Well, we'll see what happens. Uh, obviously, the the the. <laughs> the drums are beating in Ottawa, that's for sure. And as, as to what they're going to actually do about this, I guess we're going to find out in the well, next I'm couple weeks. I'm headed up to Ottawa tomorrow, Bill, so I'll let you know. All right, all right. feeling for what's going on. We'll get the definitive word, okay? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Have a great holiday. Enjoy. We'll talk again soon. Thanks, Bill. Bye-bye. Richard Brennan, of course, former journalist for the Toronto Star, who covered Parliament Hill on Queen's Park for many, many years. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's get into the vaccine program. And, and I know that getting conflicted reports about how successful it is in Canada right now, I guess depending on what metric you want to use. I know as far as fully vaccinated, i.e. both doses, uh, we are still lagging behind many other nations, and that's that's somewhat problematic. But Canada has now surpassed the federal government's initial target of having 75% of adults with at least one shot of the COVID-19 vaccine. Over 20% received the second. But before we get our hopes up and say, ah, that's it, we've, we've won, 
the country's top doctor is now stressing the job is not yet done. Global's Brianna Carnegie has the details. Canada's chief public health officer says caution is warranted as modeling that led to the initial vaccination target did not factor in the Delta variant. We need to remain vigilant while keeping up the momentum to build a higher wall of vaccination protection for the fall. Dr. Theresa Tam clarifies the 75-20 goal was mainly in the context of domestic easing of measures. Many provinces would expect us to, of course, be quite quite cautious. And when pressed by reporters on guidelines for fully vaccinated individuals, Deputy Chief Public Health Officer Dr. Howard New urged people to follow local public health measures until more details are released. I think in the coming days and and, and weeks, you will see uh, the federal government coming out with uh, different types of risk assessment tools. Brianna Carnegie, Global News. So are we on the right path, and uh, are there any blips along the way here that could cause problems? Uh, to talk about this, we're so pleased to welcome to the program uh, Dion Ailman, who's an associate professor in the Department of Mechanical and Industrial Engineering and the Faculty of Applied Science and Engineering Director of Medical Operations Research Lab at the University of Toronto. Uh, professor, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us today. Thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, the Delta Plus is, is the wild card, as Dr. Tam told us. I mean, when they were looking at their modeling numbers, they didn't include this. Uh, how much of a factor is that going to be going forward? Because we're told that the, the vaccines that we're using mostly now, Pfizer and Moderna, are pretty effective against that. Yeah, so the, the Delta Plus variant um, has really only been um, discovered and cataloged over the past couple of weeks, and there's still only a couple dozen cases that have been uh, verified in India. And while um, India is reporting that they think it's more transmissible and a little bit more severe, it's still really very early going in terms of evidence. So it's really hard to say it is right now very much still a wild card. Maybe you could explain uh, how these things happen, how these variants happen. I mean, this is uh, the Delta Plus that you're referring to, of course, is, is relatively new. I mean, we knew about the Delta uh, variant, and, and that was problematic, and we saw how that had such a, a terrible impact on, on India uh, some months ago now. Uh, we seem to be handling it, although it, it is the dominant force here in Ontario right now. Uh, but the, the Delta Plus, how do these things evolve, and how do they, how do they decide to change in, in situations like this? How does this virus actually operate? Well, uh, I'm not a biologist, so I can't speak to the particular mechanisms, but it's basically just evolution. Um, lots of random chance, random mutations. Essentially, imagine just flipping a coin over and over and over again. Sometimes uh, you might get a good outcome where um, a new variant, uh, maybe it spreads very easily, but doesn't cause any significant uh, damage to the people it infects. Or maybe you get very unlucky and you get a new variant spread very easily and um uh, results in very severe outcomes and is also resistant to a vaccine. I mean, at the end of the day, it's a numbers game, which is why it's so important for everybody to get vaccinated, not just here in Canada, but globally, because the more people who are vaccinated, the less opportunity to spread, the less opportunity it has to mutate into something new and unknown. And, of course, we're looking at our, our national numbers and being unconcerned about that. And as Dr. Tam said, we've got a long way to go, obviously, to make sure that everybody is, is double vaccinated, got both doses of this. But the global picture, I guess, is the most troubling, isn't it, Professor? Because we, that's something we can't control. And when we keep hearing about these variants, the, the second one now from India, the, the Delta Plus, uh, I, I know it, it, it's just, it underscores the need for everybody in the world to be vaccinated as quickly as possible. And I guess we, you know, we're trying to do that with the announcement last week from a number of nations uh, at the G7 that they were going to start uh, distributing us some of the vaccines. Uh, but it's it's a race, isn't it? it? It is a race. And the challenging part is that you can't actually see who you're racing 
or know where the finish line is when it comes to uh, eliminating the possibility for um, undesirable variants to emerge. So every country has to balance um, how they want to distribute their vaccine amongst their population, protecting their own citizens versus donating their vaccines to areas with uh, widespread COVID problems like um, in order to worse variants from a but eventually get back and harm their own population as well. So it's really hard to know where, where the right balance point is. Well, I mean, you look at the situation in India, and like I say, we saw how ravaging that the, the, the Delta variant was when we first heard about that. Uh, Monday, apparently, the numbers I see here says India vaccinated a record 8.6 million people uh, as it began offering free shots to all adults. Uh, they, they can't sustain that level, I would think, each and every day. But that, that I think, probably speaks to the magnitude of, of the challenge ahead. Yeah, so what I've seen is that um, India could probably sustain about half of that daily uh, number of vaccinations, but that's still a huge number of vaccinations, and um, not necessarily enough to truly get out in front of uh, the Delta variant wave that they're having now. That's not even counting the potential wild card of Delta Plus. So, I mean, India is just, um, it's a huge country. 1.4 billion people means they need that many more vaccinations happening that much faster to really put themselves um, in front of, of this COVID wave. And I know here in, in this country, there's still our restrictions in play right now, but travel from some of those countries into here. Does shutting the borders down effectively control the virus and, and, and encapsulate it? Well, it all depends on how effective the shutdown of the border can be. And you know, the truth of the matter is that regardless of how many restrictions are put in place, there's always going to be um, ways for people to, to get through. So even if there is a um, uh, you know, travel ban right now on flights directly from India or requiring people who are coming from certain countries to get tested somewhere along the way during their travel before they can actually land in Canada, it's still risky. Uh, it's not to say that, um, that these travel bans aren't um, successful um, to some degree, but they're definitely creating this impenetrable barrier, which is why we here in Canada still need to be vigilant and careful and make sure that we are participating in contact tracing and following whatever the current quarantine guidelines are when we return from any travel. And in a situation like that, it's not as if, okay, the ban is in place and it might have had some impact, you know, as far as the number of new cases, for instance, in this country. Uh, but we've seen other countries that have established those bans. And as soon as they say, okay, I think we're okay now, uh, and they lift the bans, uh, all of a sudden cases start cropping up again, too. I mean, it's just, it's, it seems almost inevitable that, it, that it's going to happen. It's just a matter of trying to mitigate the damage. In part, yes. Um, but also, as travel bans were lifted, even just uh, a few months ago, uh, vaccine uptake was, was much less, just mm-hmm. through uh, you know, less availability of vaccines. So the situation on the ground is, is essentially changing every day, especially here in Canada, where we are still vaccinating people at, at really quite a fast rate every day. Um, so every day we become safer and safer. So the changes in, in restrictions that uh, you know may have resulted in a worsening of um, of COVID cases, like even just three months ago, are not necessarily going to have that same impact today, assuming that we don't see any new and unknown variants that our vaccines um, are ineffective against. When we keep hearing about this, first the Delta variant, now the Delta Plus variant that's uh, that's starting to show up in India, uh, 
how does that impact the, the whole concept of herd immunity? Is that something that we have heard so much about, Professor, especially when the vaccine program was just starting uh, earlier this year in Canada anyway? Uh, and we thought, boy, if we can get to 85% or 90% or whatever the number is these days, uh, we've got that herd immunity, and that's, that's, that's a pretty good shield against these variants. But when the variants keep changing like that, does that number keep changing? Well, it, it depends on how effective vaccines are against these variants. So, you know, the the commonly agreed upon minimum number of population vaccinations needed for herd immunity is, I'd say, 70 to 80 percent for really any communicable disease, not just COVID. Um, and that's talking about the whole population, not just the eligible population. So I know mostly when we see uh, press conferences or news reports, they're talking about how many people who are eligible to be vaccinated have gotten vaccinated that's not the same as the whole population. So like right now we're at about 75% of um, adults uh, who have been vaccinated, but we're really only at about 67% of the total population. I'm 100% confident that we will get to that you know, minimum 70% mark. But at the same time, you have to remember that these vaccines are not distributed to everybody in the country equally. Like right now, kids under 12 are not vaccinated. Uh, so even though we might have good vaccination numbers population at whole, we, as a whole, we have a whole group of people who mix together every day in school. Let's say once school returns in, in September, and I feel it's relatively safe to say that it probably will, mm-hmm. um, they're not protected. Uh, and we've actually just seen in, in the Yukon, uh, their recent outbreak was largely centered around school kids and school events and uh, some house parties. So there is still uh, that danger around until we can get that essentially last group of our population uh, vaccinated. But there's good news on that front. <laughs> like Pfizer uh, has announced that they are expecting FDA approval in mid-September to start vaccinating kids ages two years old and up. Uh, so assuming that that happens and Canada follows suit shortly thereafter, we will again be very quickly moving towards whole population protection. That's that excellent news because I know when we were talking with Dr. Peter Unia the other day about that, and he said the data he said could could well be late this year, early next year that uh, that the, the children's vaccine might be ready. But obviously Pfizer's uh, I guess really accelerated the pace here, uh, and, and that'd be great if we can get that because that's a whole segment of the population. You're right that uh, that are going to be exposed in situations like that. What does that vaccine look like, uh, Professor? When we we talk about a, a children's vaccine, uh, you know they're they're little bodies. We're large your bodies as adults? Is it just a, a matter of, of, the, of the amount of vaccine or is there something special that has to be in that because they're kids? How, how do you approach something like that? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> uh, I'm not actually an expert in, uh, in the, the medical science of vaccines, so I can't comment. But uh, what I can say is that if the vaccines do get approval for ages two and up, whatever the vaccine is, whether it's exactly the same as the one that adults receive or it's in some way a little bit different, maybe a smaller dosage, it, it has been tested and approved and it is safe. So that's that's obviously the that's the the, the line here that we'll be looking at here. The, the the efficacy of the vaccine is obviously going to be of paramount importance. Uh, but there's a number of other things that are happening right now too, uh, with uh, the development of other vaccines. We already know, of course, about the Russian vaccine, and apparently that's being shipped to India right now too because of the concerns uh, they've got with the the new variant that's going on there. Uh, do we look forward to the development of, of other vaccines, or are the ones that we're talking about right now going to be the standard going forward? The the the, the Modernas and, and the Pfizer's. 
know, we mentioned uh, the other day, of course, that that uh, laboratory in Montreal that the government was financing uh, says they're going to be up and running in the next couple of months. What, what and they're, they're talking about uh, getting the the rolls, the, the the vaccine rolling going as quick as possible in situations like that. Uh, what actually in a situation like that, where there's a relatively new factory, uh, are they going to be designing uh, their own special version of a vaccine, or do they simply look to replicate the ones that are here? Because there, there's a there's a, a, a legal problem there too, isn't there? Well, if they're truly intending to be producing vaccines within the next few months or by the end of the year, then they will almost certainly be producing an existing vaccine, and they'll make arrangements with that manufacturer regarding intellectual property and licensing and whatever else um, goes into uh, into those arrangements. Um, as far as new vaccines being created, um, Cuba has recently announced uh, their own vaccine that they've produced locally that uh, that seems to have pretty good effectiveness. There's also the Chinese vaccine, although uh, they've recently had uh, an incident in Indonesia where numerous people, uh, healthcare workers who received uh, Sinovac, the Chinese vaccine, did actually end up hospitalized uh, with COVID. So uh, that certainly calls into question maybe the, the effectiveness of, uh, of the Chinese vaccine against the Delta variant uh, in particular. Um, but more information will always be coming forth and we'll see if uh, new and different vaccines get created. Um, I know uh, early when the vaccines were, were first being disseminated, uh, there was a lot of speculation that uh, we might all need, let's say, a third mm-hmm. booster shot next year or maybe annually. This is something that we all have to get, uh, just like the flu shot. Um, and if that's the case, then there might be you know, continued research into developing uh, a COVID booster shot that uh, is more effective or more long-lasting uh, with the variants that uh, kind of, I guess, settle uh, into steady state in the future we'll see because the question that i think everyone to ask is, is well how long is is the vaccine going to be effective and i guess the, the short answer from what i've been able to ascertain is we just don't know yet do we yeah time will tell uh, as to whether or not there have to be vaccines uh, as you say on a regular basis go- going forward or, or whether this is just going to do us uh it, it's it, a work in progress because uh, this is all new to us and it, you know we we don't know because these things are just coming on the market right now and i, I know some people are going to say me you don't know about the vaccine well we know as much as we can know about it uh, but it, uh, it's still a work in progress i would think to determine just how effective it's going to be and how long it's going to be effective that's exactly right. Um, right now, we only know that the vaccines are effective for as, as long as the vaccines have been around, right? Because we can't measure something mm-hmm. out into the future. Uh, but there's, you know, a lot of eyes uh, from government science um, bodies, medical boards, the vaccine manufacturers themselves, studying um, people who have gotten the vaccine and monitoring them and following them so that they can uh, understand essentially every day, gathering more information about uh, the long-term response of of our bodies to the vaccine and to see how long will we maintain um, either immunity or at least um, prevention of severe infection if we do happen to uh, to get COVID after being vaccinated. A lot of questions. So it's always uh, intriguing and always uh, helpful that uh, somebody like yourself can pop in here for a while and give us some clarity on some of these issues. Professor, thank you so much for the time today. My pleasure. Take care. That's Professor Deanne Ailman uh, from the University of Toronto. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.